Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and in this program we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every month we have a variety of different topics. We talk about Catholic culture, art, architecture, music, literature. We have guests to talk about particular saints who mean a lot to them or particular Catholic devotions. We also listen to a convert who comes to the Catholic Church from a different faith tradition or a different denomination. And one of the segments we have in More Christianity is also the supernatural dimension of our faith. Sean Chapman is here today to talk about how we treat miracles, how we treat the supernatural, the paranormal, uh, and all those different fascinating and intriguing aspects of religion uh, and of human life and also of the Catholic Church. Sean, welcome to More Christianity. Thank you, Father. It's an honor to be here. And today we're going to begin talking about the supernatural dimension of our Catholic faith, and we're going to jump right in by talking about something which is most intriguing, and that is the incorruptibles. Uh, Sean, can you explain to us, to our listeners, a little bit of what the incorruptibles actually are? Well, yes. um, It's a strange phenomenon. Of course, after death, most expect decomposition of the body. But somehow, someway, what we find is that in many of these cases of saints, that has not taken place. So how do they find out that it doesn't take place? Sometimes they uh, just exhume the body to move it to another place, and and they might discover that, much to their surprise, there's been no decay. Yes, I think what happened was, first of all, they they did actually exhume the bodies and move them on. We have to also understand in the ancient world that a a lot of times people were not buried in a coffin in the ground the way way we're used to. The uh, bodies were placed into a tomb in sort of a, a niche in the wall. And it would be left there until the body decayed, and then they would take the body out or the bones out, put them in a jar, and put them someplace safe and use the same niche for another person. So burial customs in different cultures at different times were were different. And I think it was in this process where they took the saints' remains out, they opened it up to sort of move the bones and found that, uh-oh, um, so-and-so hasn't hasn't decayed. So they would block it up again and wait a bit longer and then discover again, so-and-so hasn't decayed. I know that you've been over to France, like I have, and you've seen one of the most famous of the incorruptible St. Bernadette, which we're going to talk about in a moment. It seems that the very first of the incorruptibles to have been discovered was St. Cecilia, who was actually martyred in, in A.D. 177, and she was one of the first Roman virgin martyrs. She was martyred for her faith, and, and she wouldn't give up her virginity to marry, and, and so she died in 177, so as long ago as that. And then her remains were moved to a new site in 822, and found to be incorrupt. They were moved again in 1599 and found that they're still incorrupt. And you can visit her tomb in Rome to this day. I think they haven't opened it up for some time, so we don't know if she's still incorrupt (laughs) after nearly 2,000 years. But certainly after 1,000 years or or 1,500 years, her body was still incorrupt. And this was the first time, I think, that the church began to say, there's something strange going on here. What sort of response did you have when you first came across in your own life the idea of the incorruptibles? What I find is there's a certain level of almost dark, I think. Macabre. Yeah, that's a better word for it. And gruesome. (laughs) And as somebody who didn't really grow up around the faith, when I first saw it, I just sort of had to kind of go, whoa, what is that? Right, so you're taken aback. It's a bit like uh, the relics, isn't it? When you first come across relics uh, in the Catholic faith as a convert, there was that yuck factor, wasn't there? You know, you mean exactly. that really is grotesque. Yeah, that really is a piece of so-and-so's bone in there? Yeah, that's right. And this whole phenomenon actually, it makes me think again about the physicality of our faith. Is that one of the reasons we as Catholics continue to venerate relics? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, this is the whole kind of dynamic of the incarnation, which is the sense in which God has made his creation, has given it a, a new life, a divine life, a supernatural life, even to the point of 
things like you see in the New Testament with Paul's handkerchief having a kind of supernatural power as long as it touches people. The incorruptibles, in a sense, well, they are the most shining example of a relic. And uh, the incorrupt body of a saint is a complete relic. It's still there. I've been looking into the the whole subject of the Incorruptibles. The classic book on it was written by Joan Carroll Cruz. It's called The Incorruptibles. It's been a Catholic bestseller for years. But there are also websites and so forth which tell us about these. Another famous one is St. Agnes of Montepulciano. She died in 1317. Not only did her body remain incorrupt, but a perfumed liquid flowed from her hands and feet. She was canonized by Pope Benedict XIII in 1726. Another Italian, St. Catherine of Bologna, died at the age of 49 in 1463. She was buried unembalmed and without a casket, and 18 days later, after various reports of graveside miracles, they exhumed her body and found it to be flexible and incorrupt. And it's in the Chapel of the Poor Clares in Bologna, where it is still displayed today. You can see it in a glass case there. So you go to France and Italy and you see these things, and uh, it's a real eye-opener. So tell us your story then about uh, visiting France and going to the convent of St. Gildard, in, which reads as Nevers, yeah. but it's pronounced Nevers uh, in France. I did a pilgrimage just to kind of come to a deeper sense of where God was leading me. For various reasons, I was drawn to Bernadette of Lourdes, and it was an incredible visit. The thing that sticks out in my mind the most is going to Mass. Beside the altar mm-hmm. is this casket of Sleeping Beauty. But it's not Sleeping Beauty, of course. It's the remains of of St. Bernadette. St. Bernadette, we remind the listeners, was the saint who uh, had the apparition of the Blessed Virgin at Lourdes, who revealed to her, I am the Immaculate Conception, a peasant girl um, who had this remarkable revelation. And she went into the convent in Nevers, and that's where she died, and discovered that her body was incorrupt. Right, and, and going to the convent and visiting it, there's beautiful gardens there and everything. But but like I said, the experience of going to Mass where I'm seeing the casket, I'm seeing her, mm-hmm. and I'm reminded, you know, and I never really thought of the incorruptibles in this way, but as I'm receiving the Eucharist, I realize that's what I'm receiving. I'm receiving incorruptibility. That's what, in a certain sense, it symbolized for me on that occasion. And the story of Bernadette is one of the most remarkable because it's comparatively modern. You know, we talked about St. Cecilia, who died in the year 177. Well, we don't have any documentation. When they did exhume her body, who were the witnesses? We we don't have any of that written down. But with Bernadette, because she was already on the path to sainthood and her cause for canonization had already been opened, therefore when they exhumed her body, which is actually now part of the canonization process, everything was documented. They They made sure that they had reliable witnesses there, people who were trustworthy and respectable, And they wrote it all down. I mean, it's remarkable. Let me just run through that with you. What happened was they exhumed her body, first of all, in 1909, which I believe is about 25 years after she died. And they did so in the presence of representatives appointed by the postulators for her cause. There were two doctors there and a sister from her community who actually remembered Bernadette's death and was there and had prepared her for burial. Hmm. So she remembered what it was like when Bernadette was buried. And... They opened up the coffin, and they said that the crucifix in St. Bernadette's hand and her rosary had both oxidized and, and begun to decay, but her body appeared incorrupt, preserved from all decomposition. So they washed the body, and they buried again, buried it again in a, in a double casket. And then the church exhumed the corpse a second time on the 3rd of April, 1919. This is 10 years later. And there was a doctor who examined the body, and he wrote down his findings, Uh, He said, the body is practically mummified, covered with patches of mildew, 
and a notable layer of salts, which appear to be calcium salts. The skin has disappeared in some places, but it is still present in most parts of the body. So here's a, a very objective doctor's report yeah. on the exhumation. I mean, the, the documentation is, is remarkable. I think that's important for people to understand is, is the church is not running around looking to confirm every single miracle. In fact, the church is pretty has a pretty healthy skepticism about any any of these kinds. So I think it's important to know that that they go, even in this case, through a rigorous process to say, okay, we're not looking to find something where it's not. So. Yes, and as the cause for, for Bernadette went on, this aspect of, of being skeptical about the whole thing was actually put into play. I think in, at one point, one of the witnesses they had was actually a non-believer, and they actually got him there to testify and to the opening the, the casket and exhuming the body to really say what they found. I'm Dwight Longenecker. You're listening to More Christianity, the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Today, we're talking about the supernatural dimension of our faith, and my guest is religion teacher Sean Chapman. He teaches apologetics and church history at St. Joseph's Catholic School in Greenville, South Carolina. We're talking about the incorruptibles, especially we're talking today about St. Bernadette. I went back and uh, looked up Sean a little bit more about the exhumation process. Her body was exhumed in 1909, 10 years later in 1919. And then in 1925, some six years or so later, the church exhumed the body for a third time. They took some relics, and this time they also made an imprint of her face and her hands, and they made a kind of wax mask, a thin wax mask. So when you said that you went to Nevers and you saw St. Bernadette in her crystal and gold coffin, which is right there in the church, and she looked like Sleeping Beauty, like she's about to wake up, she really does. And right. you, can, you can see photographs of her now online. It's quite a, some famous photographs of her lying in her glass coffin, her crystal coffin as it is. Mm -hmm. We do need to tell people and remind people that what they see, her face, which looks so perfect, and her hands, which look so perfect, is actually a thin coating of wax. And what they did was they put that over not to fool the faithful and to make it fraudulent, but because although she is incorrupt, if the wax mask were taken off her hands and face, the skin is shrunk in and it's turned a brownish color, like a lot of the other incorruptibles that you see. They're not very pleasant to look at because, in a sense, they're a natural form of mummification. Right. Because a lot of times as Catholics, we sort of look at a miracle as something, well, God decided to do something at random for no apparent reason other than to be supernatural. But making the connection, the theological connection of why God is doing these particular things and having that sort of reinforce my faith in that particular case in the Eucharist, but also in the, the notion of that it's a symbol for us all, the resurrection. So you see the incorruptibles as a symbol of the resurrection of a power that's greater than, than death and decay and, and decomposition. I'm going to put a few difficult questions to you oh, now no. just to be the devil's advocate <laughs> and see where this conversation goes because this, this is beginning to get very interesting. You say as a theology teacher, uh, the incorruptibles teach us about the resurrection and I like that and you know the victory over death that we share in Jesus Christ and so forth. Now, the skeptic's going to come back to you and say, oh, yeah, okay, that's very interesting. But tell me, then why aren't all the saints incorrupt? So they dug up St. Bernadette, and they found that she's incorrupt, and 10 years later she was still incorrupt, and another six years later, and now she's still incorrupt, and they examine her from time to time. That's very interesting. It's kind of spooky and macabre, but so what? They also dug up, um, you know, St. Therese of Lisieux, another French girl from about the same time period. They opened up her coffin, and guess what? 
just bones like anybody else and just dust in the coffin and, and she had decayed completely. So if it's a sign of the resurrection, why not every saint? I guess I'd say a couple things. First of all, God never seems to make it that easy for us. It would be a little almost too easy. But the other thing is, as a Catholic and as a human being, I'm observing something that happened. Maybe it's a miracle, maybe it's not. My entire faith doesn't hinge on the fact of whether or not even the Shroud of Turin is really the shroud which Jesus was buried in. And so what I'm looking at is a phenomenon that requires some kind of explanation. Um, And certainly it becomes even more interesting when you introduce the fact that Bernadette apparently had an encounter with the Blessed Virgin Mary. Right. So it takes on a a whole other meaning. Now, you know, obviously for, for somebody who doesn't believe at all, all the talk and piety about Mary really doesn't matter so I, I just leave it to them with, with what does matter to them, which is something that requires some kind of explanation that is, that is odd. Okay. So you're going to, you would come back and say the incorruptible saint, the bodies of, uh, the incorruptible bodies of saints, they're remarkable. They're a phenomenon which needs to be explored. We need to try to find an answer. But you're admitting with me that quick and easy theological answers like, oh, that proves that the Christian faith is true, aren't really good enough. If we, as some people do, depend on those type of arguments, then we're going to lose the argument because there's too much that we can't verify. Too much that's unpredictable. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Right. So another remarkable example of the incorruptibles, of course, is St. Charbel Maklouf. St. Charbel, a remarkable story. He was a Lebanese Maronite Catholic monk. So he's a monk living in the harsh environment of Lebanon. He lived as a hermit from 1875 until his death at the age of 70. And with a reputation for holiness, he followed a very strict ascetical sort of life. And after his death, he was buried in a cemetery, which was in a swampy area. So it was wet. Mm -hmm. Some people say these incorruptibles were only in the desert where they just Mm -hmm. dried out. They were natural mummification. Uh, Not St. Charbel. He was actually buried in a swamp. And after his death, mysterious dazzling lights were seen over his grave and pilgrims began to visit. And so they exhumed him and he was incorruptible. And not only that, he was exuding, the body was exuding sweat and a perfume, a sort of blood. And they transferred it to a special coffin. And there's so much of this fluid that it was oozing out of the coffin. People would collect it in handkerchiefs and take it away. It was a kind of oily perfume. It was like a perfume. And they would take it away, people being healed by these uh, handkerchiefs that were soaked in this sort of ointment. And then as recently as 1993, a partially paralyzed 56-year-old woman named Noed El-Shami woke up and saw two Maronite monks standing next to her bed. And she said that they performed surgery on her neck. And when she woke up the next day, she found two wounds on her neck, and she was completely healed and able to walk again. And when she saw pictures later of St. Charbel Maclouf, who had been dead now for 100 years or whatever, right. uh, she recognized him. And so that story is very similar to some of the remarkable stories we hear about Padre Pio with the various supernatural and paranormal gifts that he exhibited. So you would hear a story like that and lift your jaw off the floor and say, gee, that's – Amazing. Uh, So does it prove the Christian faith? And you would come back and say? I would say that in a way we almost want God to be tame so that we can believe the miracle. As a person who believes but is uh, skeptical, I would say, okay, you know, I'd like to know know a little bit more about that and know, you know, because you can say anything fundamentally. I I think you're right. And in fact, 
One of the reasons I don't use these examples as proof of the faith is, again, because there are so many saints where the body is not incorrupt. And yet there are other miracles associated with the saints. And this draws me back to the belief and the understanding as well that God works in different ways with each one of us. Each one of us are a unique creation and a unique second creation by his grace. Therefore, his way of working in your life, his way of working in my life, his way in working in the lives of all of our listeners is totally unique. Each one of us are as unique as a snowflake. Each one of us are totally a unique creation of God. Therefore, he's going to work with each one of us in a unique way. Therefore, if every single saint were incorrupt, that would almost not fit, if you see what I mean. In fact, there are, are, on the other hand, other remarkable phenomena. I'd like to share with you the story of when I I went to Never and met St. Bernadette. I was living in England at the time and made a three-month pilgrimage across France and Italy to Jerusalem, staying in monasteries along the way. And Never was one of the places I wanted to go to. So I pulled into the convent and went into the chapel immediately and had a look at the the crystal coffin and and the saint lying there. And then I go to to supper because I was staying in the convent overnight. And this American woman comes and sits next to me. This is in the middle of France, right? And she says in this southern accent, she says, do you mind if I sit here? And um, I said, no, please join me. So she sat and she was from Mobile, Alabama. She says, I became a Catholic from the Baptist faith because I had a vision of St. Bernadette. Well, she had the keys to the place. And it, she said, I come here every summer to practice my French. So <laughs> she she spoke French with this Alabama accent, right? So she takes me around the whole place, unlocks the door to the room where St. Bernadette died. The room was still the, the way it was the day she died. She told me about the exhumation process. And she said, I know about all this because my daddy in Mobile is an undertaker. So <laughs> she was a real character. Yeah. And she was very impressed with the idea that I was hitchhiking to Jerusalem. She said I had to pray for her at the Holy Sites in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So the next day after breakfast, she meets me again. She says, now, Dwight, she says, I want you to spend – before you get back on the road, I want you to spend time with Bernadette. <laughs> okay, so – I went in there and knelt before the coffin. I'm an Anglican at this time, right? I'm not, I'm not even a Catholic. So I'm kneeling there. And I had gone to see Bernadette's uncorrupt body, kind of like you might go to a wax museum. You know, it's curious. It's a little bit, as you say, a little bit macabre. You know, it's, it's, there's a kind of fascination you have with roadkill almost. You know, it's kind of like, ooh, yuck. And, and so I'm, I'm kneeling there and being, like you said, a little bit cynical, a little bit skeptical, perhaps. I'm an Anglican. I've been brought up as a Baptist saying this is really very Catholic, you know. But a great calm came over me and a great stillness. And I I entered into a deep kind of prayer. And while I was there, there was a fantastic fragrance of roses. I looked all around. There weren't any flowers in in the chapel anywhere. So I sort of shrugged and left the chapel and – and Betty Sue was waiting for me outside. She said, well, how was it? And I said, told her this experience. And she said, you have been blessed. Bernadette has given you a great grace. You've experienced the odor of sanctity. I didn't even know what odor of sanctity was. But again, here was something which was inexplicable. I, I, I couldn't explain it. It was something which I experienced, which was greater than my perception uh, and greater than I had categories for. I Then many years later, back in England, was talking about St. Therese, and one of the people in the audience said, oh, my grandmother was at the exhumation of Therese in Lisieux when they dug up her coffin and opened it up. She said thousands of people were there, she said, and when they opened the coffin, everybody was overwhelmed with the most fantastic fragrance of roses. And, of course, Therese of Lisieux is known as the little flower always pictured with the roses. And then there's a connection because apparently the same thing happened with Teresa of Avila, Hmm. another Carmelite named like Therese with the same name, Teresa, right. she died in 1640. And the odor on her exhumation in 1929 
that many centuries later, was a sweet perfume of roses and jasmine, which clung not only to her body, but all the articles associated with her, all of the second-class relics. So what we find here with the incorruptibles is God working in a unique way with each person, and you're actually saying that this doesn't prove anything, except, as it says in Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth than your philosophy has dreamt of. Is that what you'd conclude? Absolutely. And and kind of to your point about personal experiences, when you don't have categories for it and yet you still experience it, when you try to explain this to somebody who wasn't there, mm-hmm. it's almost like, how do you explain it? They, you know, they, they've got to experience it themselves. And in a certain way, miracles and signs, except for a few exceptions, are meant for the particular. They're God's way of communicating with you specifically so that when you say it to somebody else, they may be moved by it. But in a lot of cases, it's just Okay, that's interesting. Right. And yeah. what's interesting to me about that, Sean, is that in the midst of all this, the Catholic Church doesn't actually trumpet these miracles and say, ha-ha, you see, you unbelieving people, the incorruptible saint proved the Catholic faith is true, uh, therefore all of you convert. Instead, we step back from it all, and the Church teaches us to treat all of these kind of phenomena, whether it's incorruptible saints or Eucharistic miracles or, you know, healing miracles or whatever they are, apparitions to the Blessed Virgin and interlocutions, all these things, the Church says, okay, just like you've said, well, that's interesting. Um, Yes, well, we don't really have any explanation for that. And, uh, you know, well, we'll keep an open mind about it. And next order of business, (laughs) you know, it's it's very reasonable to believe. It's reasonable. It's okay. Um, This will not harm your faith. It's not necessary as part of your faith, but if it contributes to you growing in it, therefore it it has value. I mean, that's kind of a very practical. I, you know, and as a con, as someone coming into the Catholic Church, I actually found that very refreshing, very sensible, and very down to earth. That on the one hand, the Catholic Church didn't do away with the idea of miracles and say oh, that could never happen, but on the other hand, they weren't overly credulous and gullible, saying, "Oh, look, right. a wonderful miracle." It was almost like the story I remember about. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, some of his students learned that in a nearby town, there was a nun who could levitate. And so crowds of people were coming to see this nun who was levitating during prayer, and she was floating up towards the ceiling because, you know, this was such a great miracle. And Thomas Aquinas was taken to see this nun who could levitate, and everyone said, oh, look, look, look up there. It's a wonderful miracle. She's levitating. And what do you think, say, uh, you know, they didn't call him St. Thomas, what do you think, <laughs> what do you think of this, Master? And Thomas Aquinas looks up and says, hmm. <laughs> he says, I didn't know nuns wore such big boots. <laughs> That's very St. Thomas. And apparently he, he supposedly was one of uh, a saint that levitated at some point. And he had mystical so, experiences, yeah. but he wasn't overly impressed by them. I think also one of the dangers in getting too involved in these intriguing subjects is that we can get all tied up in, oh, isn't it miraculous? Isn't it wonderful? And we can actually forget to say our prayers. Uh, We can actually forget to do those acts of kindness. We can actually forget the corporal works of mercy. We can actually forget the things that really do matter. To read the Bible. I mean, a a good example of this is sometimes we'll read more about Marian apparitions than they will from Scripture. You know, somebody will point to me, look what it says here. This apparition says this. I said, it also says that in the Bible. So in a sense, it becomes a replacement the desire for mysticism becomes a replacement for the day-to-day kind of grind. Yes, in fact, it's always a sign of false mysticism when people are too absorbed in the supernatural, too absorbed in apparitions and miracles and prophecies of the last times and all this sort of thing. The real mystics, like Therese of Avila and Therese of Lisieux and 
all the great mystics of the church have always been extremely practical people. They've, they wear working clothes. In many cases, they suffer for their miracles because the church institution being very pragmatic about it and not running after every miracle, whereas the individual saint has this experience like, you know, like with Bernadette with the bishop saying, yes. well, this lady appeared to me, build a church. Well, okay, right. We're going to go do that. I mean, so there is a tension even within the church. A, a great yeah. tension yeah. between the practical things that need to be required and the mystical experiences. And it's that tension which actually gives the power and gives the thrust to all of this. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. You're listening to More Christianity. My guest today is Sean Chapman, who's a theology teacher at St. Joseph's Catholic School in Greenville, South Carolina. And today we've been discussing the incorruptible bodies of saints. Let's just draw things to a close now, Sean. Here we are presented with the incorruptibles, people like St. Bernadette, St. Vincent de Paul, St. John Vianney, St. Catherine Labore, St. Cecilia, modern saints like the Maronite St. Charbel Maclouf. The stories keep going on, and the fascination of it keeps keeps going on. It is an intriguing subject, incorrupt, even after 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 500 years. I'd like to refer our listeners to a classic book on the subject, The Incorruptibles by Joan Carol Cruz. There's also a fair bit of information on the Internet. You can also go to my website, DwightLongenecker.com, and my blog, Standing on My Head, to read more about these topics. Go through and have a search and and snoop around and uh, see what you can discover. Sean, how would you summarize what a proper Catholic response is to the whole thing? To the extent that it contributes to that sense of awe and wonder and hope, ultimately, about what has been revealed to us, meaning in the case of incorruptibles, future resurrection and incorruptibility with God for all of eternity, to the extent that it points to that, because that's what miracles are in Scripture, refers to them as signs, meaning pointing to something. As long as it continues to point to that in your faith, it's a wonderful thing. It's quite mysterious. So by all means, uh, if you're a good Catholic, you look at these phenomena of the incorruptible bodies of saints and other miraculous elements, and you use it to inspire your faith. You use it as a form of hope in the resurrection. It's a reminder to you that uh, a whole area of faith is much bigger than we can ever classify and categorize. It's something which can't really be pinned down. But then you also roll up your sleeves and you get back to work. You get down on your knees and you say your prayers because that's where the faith is really put into action in your life and in mine. Wonderfully said. Okay. <laughs> this is, you've been listening to More Christianity, the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and my guest today has been Sean Chapman, theology teacher and apologetics teacher at St. Joseph's Catholic School in Greenville, South Carolina. Thank you for listening. And may Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this day and always. Amen.